The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm John Emmons, intern at Lawfare, with an episode from the Lawfare Archive for May 20th, 2023. As the 2024 presidential race comes into focus, alongside recent major innovations in generative AI models, I decided to select an episode from September 2020 for this week's Archive podcast, in which Benjamin Wittes sat down with Quinna Jurassic, Jacob Schultz, and Danielle Citron to discuss a spate of what they call cheap fakes, hastily made and easily detectable manipulated videos, shared by the Trump campaign in the run-up to the 2020 election. They went over who posted what on Twitter and other platforms, how social media companies responded, whether more could have been done, and whether it's still worth it for campaigns to propagate manipulated video in light of platform responses. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, September 9th, 2020. It was a big week for manipulated video and audio content. Within 36 hours, senior Republicans or people associated with the Trump campaign three times tweeted or posted or shared manipulated audio or video on social media, prompting backlash from media and the tech companies. Last week, Lawfare's managing editor, Quinta Jurassic and associate editor, Jacob Schultz, wrote a piece analyzing these incidents. They came on the podcast to talk about it. So did Danielle Citron, a professor of law at the Boston University School of Law and a MacArthur Fellow who has written for Lawfare and appeared on the Lawfare podcast on issues of deep fakes and, in this case, cheap fakes. It's a wide-ranging conversation. Who posted what on Twitter and other social media How did the companies respond? What more could they have done? And is posting manipulated video still worth it, given what the companies now do? It's the Lawfare Podcast, September 9th. Cheap fakes on the campaign trail. Jacob, get us started. What was it that happened uh, last week that caused you and Quinta to write this piece? Yeah, so it was a bit of a whirlwind 36 hours. So on the morning of August 30th, which was a Sunday, Steve Scalise, who is the second highest ranking Republican in the House of Representatives, tweeted out a video that was a conversation between Joe Biden and disabled 
activist Addie Barkin. And so the video had manipulated what Barkin had originally said, sort of in the service of making a claim that Biden had agreed to defund the police. In the original exchange, it's not quite that. And in the video, there's sort of an insertion of a word that Barkin had not said. So that was the first one. And then very soon after that, there was another cheap fake video that was circulating online. And it was shared by the White House Deputy Chief of Staff for Communications, Dan Scavino. And that video appeared to show Joe Biden falling asleep during a TV interview. And so the original interview was a video featuring uh, Harry Belafonte, the singer, and not Joe Biden at all. And Biden was sort of duplicitously inserted into the video. So that was the second one. And then the final video came later that day from the Trump campaign Twitter account, which is at Trump War Room, which sort of posts incessant campaign material and other stuff. And it was just a three second video. And what it purported to show was Biden saying, quote, you won't be safe in Joe Biden's America. Now that video in reality was part of a way longer exchange Biden giving a a sort of talk where he was parodying the talking point made by Trump, Pence, and others who sort of incessantly raised the point that, you know, you won't be safe in Joe Biden's America. So all three were sort of very quickly edited videos that sort of twisted the words of, in all instances, Joe Biden to to make him seem worse and to sort of portray a facade of something that that didn't happen. So Quinta... You guys created a kind of theory out of these three incidents. What do you think they stand for and why? Right. So there are two points that I think are important to make. The first one is, Jacob, and I noted is that I think it's it's very easy to kind of constantly be a downer on the tech companies and say that they're, you know, they're contributing to this problem of disinformation. They're not doing enough, all that kind of thing. And I think it is true that they they aren't doing enough to address this kind of misinformation. That said, it is notable that in all three of these cases, uh, Twitter actually slapped labels on all of the tweets calling them manipulative media. And in at least one, possibly two of the cases also limited the ability of users to share or like or respond to the tweets. So that is a big contrast to how platforms have previously handled incidents like these. There was a for example, a video of Nancy Pelosi in uh, the spring of 2019 that was slowed down to make it seem like she was drunk or somehow impaired. And uh, Twitter, to great controversy, chose not to do anything. So I think it's notable both that Twitter took quick action and that it took quick action according to a policy that it had clearly set out along the lines of, you know, how it was going to deal with manipulated media like this. Uh, The story with Facebook and YouTube is a little more complicated, but I do think that this shows there's a little more sophistication on the part of the platforms in dealing with this kind of stuff. So that leads to the second point, which is that it's good, you know, platforms doing something is better than platforms doing nothing. But I think we need to be clear about the limits of platform responsibility here. It is certainly true that Twitter, I think, was right to take action. I would argue that they might even have been more aggressive. But at a certain point, it becomes unreasonable to expect Twitter to be policing the information environment like this and to sort of stop information like this from spreading 
when, frankly, the Republican Party and those who support Trump have sort of entered into a space where there are just no norms that are constraining them from manufacturing material like this, right? You know, Steve Scalise tweeted this video. Uh, he he seems to have, you know, been somewhat chastened at least. But Dan Scavino, this is not the first time Scavino has done something like this. And in the absence of strong political and social norms against this kind of fakery in a political context, it's just going to be whack-a-mole as far as the platforms are concerned. And just to be clear, are you suggesting that this is a non-parallel environment, i.e. that the Republicans are sharing at high levels on a semi-frequent basis doctored videos, but that there is no similar activity on the Democratic side? I would say that that's that's a correct framing of the issue. I actually thought it was notable that um, over the last couple of days, I saw a video that was being passed around on Twitter of that someone had edited to make it seem like Trump was ambling around. And it was actually, it was from a non-verified Twitter account, and it was not picked up at all by any left-leaning media um, or media that is that are often you know portrayed as left-leaning, such as the New York Times, Washington Post. And I think that's the big difference here. It's not that there aren't people who are left-leaning who produce this kind of content, but it's that the information ecosystem on the left and the center left and the center just doesn't function in the same way that it does on the right and the far right, that there is a sort of a mechanism to to curb that kind of behavior so it doesn't get amplified and rewarded. And that just doesn't exist in the Republican Party right now. So you don't know of examples of the Biden campaign to take perfect parallels, the Biden campaign uh, circulating a doctored video of Donald Trump or the I guess Steve Scalise is the second ranking Republican in the House, I believe, or the third ranking. I can't remember which. So somebody like Steny Hoyer uh, circulating doctored video of anybody. Is that is that fair? I'm not aware of it. It doesn't mean that it didn't happen, but I'm 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 not aware of any. I will say, you know, I don't want to portray the left and center left as having its hands totally clean. I think the one of the recent points where we had a similar argument over how Twitter and Facebook should handle manipulated media was during the Democratic primary when Michael Bloomberg put out a campaign video that made it appear that he'd asked some kind of devastating question to the other Democratic candidates and that there were crickets as they you know, struggled to respond. That was not how that interaction went down. And there was a, I remember there being a lot of discussion on the time among journalists and people in the Democratic Party about whether or not that was appropriate. But I think it's notable that that was one video. And I really don't think that we've seen anything close to what the Trump campaign, and the Republican Party have put out and the Democratic Party and other Democratic presidential candidates. So Danielle, when I think about the fakes that Quinta and Jacob wrote about last week, They are a far cry from the videos and the the sort of deep fake videos that you and Bobby Chesney have been warning about for a long time. Uh, To what extent do you think this is the thin edge of the wedge that's going to lead to 
the problems that you and Bobby were writing about? Or to what extent do you think rather that the that these sort of cheap fake videos, which are really easy to produce, they don't take any kind of esoteric technology, are actually, you know, a major disinformation problem on their own, albeit one that's a sort of a little bit less uh, exotic than the deep fakes you guys were writing about? So I think that cheap fakes are just an auger of, of things to come. And you're right, it is a spectrum. And so, you know, you get your videos now that someone like Hani Farid, who I, we work really closely with, would have probably little difficulty saying, okay, this is, a, this is not, except from a technical matter, it's not hard to figure out that this is a fake. But what we have seen is just the exponential growth and sophistication of deep fake technology, and especially of the mobile variety, so that it is soon enough, I know we keep saying this, but soon enough, it will be as cheap and easy to make a pretty sophisticated, hyper-realistic deep fake with just a number of photos and on your cell phone. And so that's when it when it fully democratizes. That's when I'm really worried. And it seems that at least in talking to sort of technology, you know, experts on the technical side, that increasingly it's very difficult for technical experts when you don't have comparison video that you can sort of look at when it's whole cloth digitally made up. They can't tell the difference without context, you know, history. They can't tell the difference between fake and real. And that's, I suppose, why I would say, yes, you're right. Right now, we're in a moment where cheap fakes are doing a lot of mischief. And because of our human frailties, we're primed to believe them. You know, when they go viral and they're so visible, if they confirm what we already think, if they're salacious, we're going to pass them on and we're going to buy them, right? And what I think worries Bobby and I and Quinta, we've you know written about it, the three of us, is that when not only it's just not a cheap fake that you can debunk pretty easily, like technical experts can look at it, but in an environment where it's the technical experts can't, you're in a sort of post-truth environment. I think I, I fear that, you know, when time just right, it can do a whole lot of mischief to our political system. And, you know, Quinta was saying earlier about sort of we're in an environment of like a no responsibility zone, right? And that, Ben, that leads us to our work in thinking about Section 230. And while Section 230 may do very little when it comes to the sort of political speech that we would say isn't defamatory, that is arguably opinion and parody, right? Section 230 is still something I think and you guys can decide if you want us to talk about it, that I think has to be part of the conversation in an environment where deep fakes do a whole lot of, cause a whole lot of concrete harm to specific people. So Jacob, you have actually done a bit of a study of these highly mobile fake video apps. And uh, you and I have played with them a fair bit. What can you do right now on your phone with an app you can download from the iTunes store how easy is it and what's uh what is not yet doable yeah it's a good question i mean as a first thing you have plenty of choices so there are tons and tons of these apps that you can download from the app store that you either can they sort of fall into two buckets there's the ones where you can you take a picture of your face or you take a picture of someone else's face and you can sort of smush them on 
a list of preset videos or preset GIFs. And like most of these apps, the, the choices are pretty benign. It's sort of goofy. You know, most of them are like a video of the protagonists on a TV show doing something goofy and you can stick your face on it or you can stick someone else's face on it. Or it's a video of, you know, someone doing some sort of impressive athletic feat that you can, you know, if you so choose, you can make yourself feel good and, you know, you are that person. And then a second bucket of them is sort of, I guess you could, they sort of are more just like Photoshop apps. So you can, you can upload two separate pictures. One is someone's, someone's body doing something. And then the other would be a face and you can sort of, the apps will sort of help you affix one to the other. And you can create basically any sort of image that you like. And these are sort of for anyone that has basic fluency with Photoshop, these apps aren't really doing anything that you can't do on Photoshop, but it's sort of this instantaneous, I can do this in 10 seconds, put my face on, you know, Justin Trudeau's body shaking Donald Trump's hand and it's done, right? So that's obviously one application. Those types of apps have more pernicious uses. You know, if you can upload any two pictures, that means that one of those two pictures could be something you know, sexually explicit, and then you're creating a form of non-consensual pornography. So that's a bucket of these apps. And then on the other hand, these sort of preset list GIF apps where you're uploading your face onto a video, it's pretty benign. And for the most part, largely, you know, it's, it's, you could say it's fun, but there's also with any of these things, there's the chance for sort of privacy violations, making, you know, mocking someone, maybe even a blackmail video, if it's sort of a convincing clip of someone appearing drunk or doing something stupid. But I would say based on particularly after doing this piece last week with Quinta, I, I'm sort of at the point where these apps are, you know, a few, in the future, probably something that are going to be a challenge from a democratic perspective. But I think in the more near term, you know, on last Sunday and Monday in 36 hours, things that maybe required a bit more technical legwork, someone had to use a computer to clip a video but they're sort of not, these videos that we saw from Scalise and from Scavino, they don't fall into the same bucket of things that people traditionally sort of center their anxieties around or sort of, you know, play with on the app store. But you sort of saw how from a democratic perspective, these three cheaply edited videos are doing, you know, immense amounts of damage with very limited sort of work on the front end from whomever edited them. So on the one hand, yes, you do have these apps that are coming out. But on the other hand, I think this sort of past week was a real case study of right now, there are certain specific dangers that are maybe less complicated than we'd like to imagine. Okay. So I just thought of three deep fake videos that I would like to produce to affect the political system. I want to do them in you know, 10 minutes or less. And uh, I want you to tell me whether the current technology will support the production of these deep fake videos. Okay. Donald Trump walking down a ramp and slipping, falling spectacularly. Can I do it? You could probably do it on one of these apps. I would say the other thing, it would not maybe be all that convincing. It's still sort of like, you know, if, if you're affixing his head onto the video of someone slipping, you're still going to be able to see that it's sort of obviously someone's head glued onto another video. So yes, you could do it. I don't really know how many people you would trick. Barack Obama's head 
on the image of a baby in Kenya. Yeah, you could certainly do that. And I would say we actually saw something fairly similar to that back when the Soleimani strike happened. There was Representative Paul Gosar, who's a Republican congressman from Arizona, actually tweeted out a edited picture of President Obama shaking hands with someone who he purported to be the leader of Iran, but was actually a former prime minister of India. So these types of things do happen. And I do think you could do that on your phone these days. Okay, last one. I want Nancy Pelosi in her voice on the floor of the House speaking a speech that was actually given by Kevin McCarthy. I will caveat this. I'm no technical expert, but that to me seems pretty implausible at this point that anyone could do with any sort of deliberate speed. Well, uh, thank God for small miracles. Okay, Quinta, uh, so one of the points that you guys made in this piece last week was that the nature of Adi Barkin's disability, which is he has ALS and he speaks through a voice synthesizer, made precisely the kind of video that Jacob just said I couldn't make about Nancy Pelosi makeable because you could imitate his voice synthesis and you don't see his lips moving. And so the features that make uh, the video that Jacob said he can't deep fake for me about Nancy Pelosi, you can kind of do about Addie Barkin. Your thoughts? Right. So first off, I, I want to thank Danielle for her insight and in talking this through with Jacob and myself, because we, we bounced a lot of stuff off her early on in writing this. But yeah, that's right. So Barkin, in a op-ed in the Washington Post, described his own voice as Hawking-esque, as in Stephen Hawking. Uh, so as you say, he has ALS, he uses voice assistant technology. So essentially his, his lips don't move and a computer generates the words that he's using based on eye movements. So that means a couple of things. Um, the fact that his lips don't move, I think is significant because as Jacob may have been thinking in terms of, uh, Nancy Pelosi giving a speech that Kevin McCarthy actually gave, it's, it's actually kind of hard at least with a technology that's easily available on a quick turnaround, um, and Danielle, correct me if I'm wrong, to, to make it look like someone's mouth is moving in a natural way and saying words. So the fact that that Barkin's mouth isn't moving means that it's a lot easier to just add an extra bit of audio in without it being obvious that that's what you're doing. The other thing is that, you know, because the program that Barkin is using doesn't sound like human speech that's not com computerized, you know, the, the diction is different, there's less variation in tone, it sounds, you know, computer generated, which is what it is, I, I think to, to my ears, at least, that sort of overwrote the the natural awkwardness that you might hear if you were moving audio around. So for example, if you wanted to, not to give anyone ideas, but if you wanted to clip words from something I said in the last couple of minutes to make it sound like I was saying something terrible, it wouldn't sound very natural. It would sort of go, you know, bleh, bleh, uh, and <laughs> it would be all over the place and, and it would be clear that you'd edited it because the Barkin's speech is there's it's sort of jerky because of the way that the computer generates it. Um, I think it, it didn't have that 
immediate sort of sense that you get of, oh, this has been edited. I will say, as Jacob and I noted, it's a little unclear how specifically his voice was edited in. The Washington Post initially sort of suggested that the video editor may have pulled a pre-existing clip of Barkin saying the words in question and slotted it in. Barkin suggested that and I'll just quote this from his op-ed, Scalise's team went the extra mile in seeming to find the exact voice generator I use. So suggesting that the the words were actually generated specifically for the video and that the team was able to do that convincingly because you can get a hold of the specific program that Barkin uses. Um, so all of that sort of lowers the bar to making something that is at least initially convincing. I'll also say, um, and Danielle I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Danielle made the very good point that audio faking technology is a lot more advanced than video faking technology at this point. Um, So there's the additional aspect that, you know, because the lips aren't moving and audio technology is more advanced in what it can do, that lowers the bar even further. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, 
big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. Yeah, so Danielle, talk about that. What can you do in audio that you can't yet do in video? And also, I, I you know, with all of these conversations about deep fakes, or in, these, in this case, cheap fakes, I, I'm always compelled to sort of remind listeners that, you know, the principal use of these technologies right now is less in the department of political manipulation than it is in the department of abuse and terrorizing of girls and women, specifically by the creation of fake porn. And so, you know, while we're all here high-mindedly focused, Danielle, on the political system, you know, what's going on in high schools all over the country? Sure. Okay. So just really quickly on the audio question, my understanding is that, and I realize this may not be on the market or that is open source, but that audio can now be made out of whole cloth, like digital whole cloth you can, with incredible sophistication have someone's voice seemingly say something they never said, so long as you have prior examples right, of their voice. So that is slightly different in the sense of now it, we, we're not quite yet 
in terms of absolute whole cloth creation of video and paired with audio out of whole cloth in a way that seems seamless. We're still, you know, getting there. As to the question about, you know, what is it like on the ground? A year ago, there were 15,000 deep fake videos online and 98% were deep fake sex videos. And 96% of those videos were of women. So women's faces. So essentially nearly all of the 15,000 deep fake videos were deep fake sex videos. And nearly all of them, so like 96% of them, were of women's faces being inserted into pornography without their consent. And, and Jacob, you know, rightly noted before that that is a species of non-consensual pornography, deep fake sex videos, and by my lights, fundamentally an invasion of intimate or sexual privacy. And ready, guys? It's now a year later. There are now 50,000 deep fake videos online. And again, same lineup, right? Nearly all of them are deep fake sex videos, and nearly all of them are women's faces being inserted into form. It's not just celebrities from the US, it's well-known women and just ordinary, you know, girls and women from South Korea, from, you know, from other parts of the world. So this is a global problem. You know, Ben, you asked about, so what's happening in high schools, right? I mean, we have long seen mischief, of course, with the non-consensual sharing of, of sex, you know, like of genuine images shared that where you have many more girls being pressured into the sharing of videos and many more girls' intimate images being shared without their permission. But of course, it happens to to boys and non-binary folks too. And so, you know, your question about are we seeing deep fake sex videos, right, of, of kids, right, so that it would be a virtual form of child pornography. I imagine that, you know, on the dark web, there is a whole lot of it, right? And a recent, like the biggest child porn operation in the dark web was busted up a year ago, run out of South Korea. Um, with very light fines to the people running the site and very light fines to the viewers in South Korea because they just deal with it like it's a public decency problem, right? Not, they don't care that it has, you know, it's all about the rape of children. But even there, so I would imagine like the real child porn that's, you know, appearing on the dark web, I imagine that, you know, no doubt, right? Think about the kind of screen grabs that's feasible. We surely would see that on the dark web. And do you see a connection between the political stuff and the intimate abuse stuff? I mean, I, I, I have this reaction to both that, you know, so like Nancy Pelosi looks drunk and it's clearly a manipulated video. And I don't understand why that stuff works in the sense that, okay, so she looks drunk and then you know it's a cheaply manipulated video and so you discount it and yet the human mind doesn't work that way. And similarly, you're a bunch of 15-year-olds and you see a video of your friend in, in high school in a pornographic video that you actually know she never appeared in. And yet, it sticks in the mind anyway, right? It affects that person anyway. And so my question is, why does this stuff, why is this stuff political and personal effective even when everybody knows it's garbage? 
you know, audio and video, the power of the images, it's kind of amazing. And, and on the one hand, we've long said the power of the image is laudable. Think about human rights violations. When we can see something, right, we can, where we bear witness when we see something or hear something and we say we don't need to rely on third parties. We've seen it with our eyes. And the same what makes, you know, audio and video of human rights violations so powerful, so important, that visceral you become a witness and it sticks with you and it, it's hard to shake, which is just proven by social psychologists. The same is true, of course, with the manufactured, you know, the deep fake sex video that what to the victim is a punch in the gut because not only do they think that it feels like there are, that they're, they have been sexually sort of appropriated their identities and put into porn. They feel it as if it happened to them folks describe it as like virtual rape, but also they know that no one knows the difference so that their sort of their social identity is forever diminished. Even as you say, like people might say, oh, that's probably not really Danielle, right? Or that's not probably Jacob or whoever, right? But nonetheless, the impact of video in particular, the image, you know, you have folks from Susan Sontag to scholars of film writing about how powerful and potent images are, and they stick in our mind and they're hard to shake because we think we're bearing witness in a way that it's not like Quinta told me and then I told Ben and Ben told someone else and we have to sort of think that we rely on that chain of transmission. We don't need to rely on someone's credibility. We say we've seen it. And that's why it has such a punch. Jacob, how clear is it that the political entities that posted these videos knew that they were fake when they posted them. Is it possible that we're dealing with innocent error or semi-innocent error, or was the were these clearly malicious acts on the part of uh, Steve Scalise and uh, Dan Scavino and the Trump war room? Yeah, no, it's a good question. I think for Trump war room and for Scavino, it's not immediately clear, though I will reiterate, as I think Quintus said earlier, this is not the first time that Scavino has been sort of found out tweeting these types of videos. I believe it's happened at least once. And he you know, has been confronted with this and made the choice to do it again. So while we may not know in this particular instance, we do know that this is you know, something that he's familiar with. In the case of Steve Scalise, it's actually a bit of an interesting situation. So the next morning after he had posted this video, he got sort of a primetime invitation to come on Fox and Friends, which is you know Fox News's prime morning show. And the host of Fox and Friends asked him to sort of respond to what they referred to as the accusations that he had manipulated the video. And Scalise, while he's on air, he acknowledges that the video was fake. And he says, you know, it shouldn't have been edited, but he never went as far as to apologize. And he actually kept sort of insisting that the underlying point that they were making with the edit, the sort of political point that they were making was was correct. So it's not really clear whether or not Scalise knew at the time of posting that the video was fake, but he once confronted with sort of, you know, I, I would say multiple fact checks that made pretty clear that it was fake. He he acknowledged it, but never really went as far as to apologize. And it's actually an interesting situation where in the past, I referenced um, Paul Gosar, who had posted the manipulated picture of President Obama. 
after the Soleimani strike. And there's this pattern of when people are confronted, particularly posting political fake videos and fake images, but also of posting, you know, pornographic or anything sort of fake videos. There's an assertion that, yes, I knew that this was fake, but it's it's clearly a parody, right? Like, you know, why didn't you get the joke? This clearly isn't a real picture of President Obama, et cetera, et cetera. So I actually thought it was interesting in this instance that Scalise sort of more flatly just said it shouldn't have been edited, but he didn't actually, he, he didn't go the parody route. He instead went the route of saying, yes, it was edited, but that doesn't really matter because the point that it was making is descriptively true. Quinta, if you were Steve Scalise or Dan Scavino or the Trump war room at this point, what would the lesson you take from this episode be? Is it that you got a bunch of negative attention as a result of it? The negative attention exceeded the value of the video for how, however much value it had. Uh, therefore, you know, even if you have no moral or ethical objection to it, uh, it's probably not such a good idea to do this anymore. Or conversely, do you would you take the view that, hey, it worked. We got two hours of a whole lot of attention to this. That attention will stick with people for a while. And, uh, you know, who cares if we got caught? Those jerks who were upset about it aren't going to vote for us anyway. Yeah, I would say emphatically the latter. <laughs> but wait, why, why would you say the latter? I mean, walk us through the calculation that you would make and why you would be confident that the negative attention that the episodes received was not a problem for you. Right, absolutely. So so the, this is what I wanted to get to in sort of pointing out Scalise. The fact that Scalise apologized, I think, is interesting because he is the only one who is a sitting member of Congress. And um, as Jacob and I wrote in January, I think, along with Evelyn Dweck, the House Ethics Committee recently put out a guidance essentially saying that tweeting deepfakes or cheapfakes, manipulative media may violate House ethics rules and could lead to an investigation if members of the House tweet that kind of thing. I will note that the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee has filed an ethics complaint regarding Scalise's tweet, but I have not seen anything about whether or not the committee has has done anything. So for that reason, it struck me as interesting that Scalise was the one who backed down because he is the one who you could conceivably imagine there being some kind of institutional pushback on the part of the ethics committee. On the other hand, Scavino and Trump War Room have sort of gone on their merry way and don't seem to have showed any remorse as far as I've seen. I think that that is interesting to me. And it kind of suggests that, you know, perhaps there's going to be a sort of a split between members of Congress who maybe, or at least high ranking members of Congress who need to play it a little bit more on the straight and narrow and members of the Trump campaign, um, or in Scavino's case, the White House, who can sort of go ahead and do whatever they want because no one's going to stop them. And it pretty clearly seems like the Trump campaign's approach to the election at this point is, as you say, Ben, to sort of, you know, rally the base, not worry too much about convincing people who weren't already convinced. And if that's your goal, publishing stuff like this that's manipulated to sort of play on the fears and prejudices and perhaps inaccurate beliefs of your base 
is a great way to go forward, especially because, as Jacob said, you can kind of then when, you know, when you're called out, say, oh, I can't believe you're taking me seriously. Um, the, the Trump War Room account after Twitter flagged the video as misleading, tweeted, uh, to all the triggered journalists who can't take a joke about their candidate, it's not our fault Joe Biden was dumb enough to say this on camera. So <laughs> there, there's that, that, that same kind of, you know, not even not apologizing, but sort of using the fact that they got a little bit of a slap on the wrist from the press and from Twitter as a badge of honor, as a sign of how virtuous they are in being on the wrong side of a fight with Twitter and the press. And so given that there's no institutional actor within the Republican Party apart from Congress um, and within the White House who's really willing to bring down the hammer here, I see no reason why they wouldn't just continue doing it. Danielle, one reason that they might not consider doing it is that Twitter actually reacted pretty sharply to it. Now that as Quinta says, may be reason to keep doing it because you get to virtue signal your fight with Twitter. On the other hand, uh, having you know the president's campaign's tweets labeled deceptive or videos labeled as deceptive is not a great look. So how big a deal do you think it is that the platforms are actually and particularly Twitter, which has been the most aggressive, have been activated in labeling stuff and in even in some cases pulling stuff down. Is the change of posture of the platforms merely optical or is it significant here? So I think Twitter has clearly not gone far enough, right? And And I know, I feel like I can hear Quinta and Jacob say censorship, you know, like, uh, that is if Twitter had, you know, it, it was in the business of aggressively removing, blocking, filtering, distorted, and forget it, forget deep fakes, you know, just cheap fakes, whatever, distorted media that's demonstrably false and probably caused pretty significant harm to our democracy, let alone specific people. I think they're slapping on a label. It's like, putting on a Band-Aid on a third-degree burn, it's just not doing much, right? And the reason why is because social psychologists, you know, there's all the studies about, you know, even if you say something is not true, and you, but the more that you repeat the lie and the lie, even though the lie is debunked, people tend to remember the lie, especially if it's negative and novel. And so I just don't think this labeling business is doing much and given the virality and decontextualization of so much content online, right? Like it appears in Twitter with a label, but then it appears elsewhere in a group text in three seconds and thousands of people see it. I think we need to do better. And I think it's it's false to call when a company takes something down, it's false to call it censorship in the normative sense of disapproving of powerful government taking down speech. But in fact, Twitter wants to say they're their First Amendment actors, meaning they enjoy First Amendment protections as private parties. They have their own speech interests. Well, you know what? First of all, the problem is you're not liable, so you can do whatever you want and make a whole lot of money on really destructive content and bear no responsibility for it at all. But I think they need to do better. If they're, if they're going to keep enjoying this immunity from responsibility, 
I want them to really step up to the plate and I don't care if they're cries of censorship that I, I love Quince's line, the virtue in signaling that you're on the ropes with the press like that. I love that. I don't know, Quince, is that something you say all the time or is I'm not reading it anywhere else? But, you know, that is just magnificently what they love this fight, right? And they would love Twitter, of course, to take it down because then they can say, and we've been censored by big tech. But the truth of the matter is there's damage in the long tail. And I want to prevent that damage. Like they can say whatever they want about censorship. I don't know what you think about that, Ben. So what does your ideal Twitter policy look like? I mean, if you were whispering in Jack Dorsey's ear and Dan Scavino tweets what he tweeted or or Steve Scalise posts the tweets, the video of Adi Barkin, like what what happens in a Danielle Citrin optimized world? You know, something like, and, and let, let's take right those two videos, uh, they're demonstrably false, right? I think they come down. I get the arguments about, you know, we've got to have policies and, and Twitter's policy right now is pretty close to where I recommend, right? That they say they're not going to take down parody and satire, but they leave it up to them. It violates their terms of global terms of service if it's, you know, digital manipulation that causes harm, right? Now, what they've done with that policy is in practice to slap up a label, right? They don't have to. They could take it down. And I think, you know, in certain cases that do have a lot of high profile attention on them, that can do a whole lot of harm to democracy, take it down, right? And I realize it's hard to scale. I know. <laughs> I know the responses, right? This is tough to scale. But but in a moment, especially we're at this like decision choke point with elections, like we're in a moment where the less disinformation that that can really shape views, the better, frankly, for our democracy. So I'd like to see them operationalize their speech policy more aggressively with takedowns. We are going to leave it there. Quinta Jurassic, Jacob Schultz, Danielle Citron, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our audio engineer this episode is Zachary Frank of Goat Rodeo. The Lawfare Podcast is produced and edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by the one, the only, Sophia Yan. You need to do your part to promote The Lawfare Podcast. Share it on Facebook. Tweet it on Twitter. Don't manipulate any video when you do that, though. Upvote it on Reddit, pin it on Pinterest, and of course, make TikTok videos about it, but without downloading TikTok, because that's bad for your social media hygiene. And you should leave us a rating wherever you found us and visit thelawfarestore.com for all your lawfare merch. And as always, thanks for listening.